As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Humdrum England play for a point in Poland. Super Scotland sweep aside Cyprus thanks to Mac Tom in the middle. It's flick off as Germany turned the lights out on Hansi's horror show. Neymar's better than Pele, sort of. And New Italy, same North Macedonia. Plenty more besides as well. That's all to come in this edition of the Totally Football Show. Some squad rotation up top, but no phoning it in for us, listener. That's right, it's Zoom all the way on this scorching summer Sunday, September the 10th in the UK. Uh, Essentially, we're more dedicated to international football than Jürgen Klinsmann, but not as committed as that West Ham fan who flew to Ghana to see Mohamed Kudus. Uh, We are convening virtually to round up all the events, dramatic and otherwise, from a bumper weekend of international football. It might not be as thrilling as domestic football, but it's still a good deal more palatable and straightforward than the Rugby World Cup. Just ask Kylian Mbappe if you don't believe me. Uh, joining me, Matt Davis-Adams, in what is a heavily East Midlands-influenced lineup, Adrian Clark, live from Leicestershire. Hello, Matthew. Nice to see you. Daniel Storey's just back from Poland. He's now in and around the Loughborough area. Yeah, I can confirm. 2.30am alarm UK time this morning, so I am back in what I'm a, I am obliged to call blighty. Hero. Yeah. Yeah. Looking bright and breezy too. Uh, the exception to the rule, Rotsklav coming over the hill. It's Tim Spears, live from a hotel lobby in Poland. How are you doing, Tim? Yeah, I had a lion, so I'm fine. Uh, I don't fly back till 11 o'clock tonight. So I'm in, I'm in the um, hotel lobby at the Corona Hotel. Um, but thankfully, thankfully, no symptoms uh, so far. And uh, yeah, we'll see how we get on. Are you in that totally awkward position whereby your checkout was like 10 a.m. and so now you've got to spend the whole day in that lobby? Yeah, I found a little, I found a little corner behind the reception area, um, plugged in. Been working for the last few hours, and but I'm sort of really hidden. So w- when you come around the corner, you won't see me at first. And there's the smoking area to my right. So people keep walking around the corner and then they start, they really jump when they see me. I've just, I've, I've not moved at all because I want to see people's reactions. It's just quite funny. I'm just sort of hidden in the corner. Uh, lovely stuff. More updates on that throughout the pod, hopefully. Later, we'll hear from Messrs. Horncastle, Hernigstein and more after what's been a newsworthy weekend across the continent. But first, Tim and Daniel were in attendance as England took on Ukraine on Saturday night. That's where we'll kick things off. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. England then, marshalled by the mild-mannered master of managerial mediocrity, Gareth Southgate. Some might say uh, Southgate squadron will surely qualify for next summer's Euros despite a drab draw against Ukraine in Poland. On Saturday tea time, um, Daniel, it looked like good fun on the terraces, if not on the pitch so much. Yeah, it was a really, really good atmosphere. For, for those who, who don't know, understandably, uh, Rosklav has around a quarter of a million Ukrainians, uh, the kind of diaspora post-Russia conflict and 
they're moving to Poland and it is the kind of hub of Ukraine in Poland. So this is as close as Ukraine can get to playing a home game at the moment. And Alexander Zinchenko in particular kind of was understandably really kind of milking that and and bringing everyone with him in the pre-match and the post-match during the match when he got subbed he scored the goal and there was a fantastic atmosphere there really was a, a kind of I'd say it was probably a half and half split between Ukrainians and Poland's in the home end that's probably 25,000 of each or maybe slightly fewer maybe 20,000 of each and it just made for this really not a vicious atmosphere or hostile but just this yeah, just this really positive, proud atmosphere every time Ukraine got the ball and, and certainly after they took the lead. And amidst the tinkling of soft jazz music in the hotel lobby, uh, Tim, quite the contrast, therefore, to the noise made by those Ukrainian supporters when Alexander Zinchenko gave them the lead. Well, the noise was amazing. I haven't heard um, I haven't heard a noise as loud as that for quite a while, actually. It, it had really kind of been building up for the previous five minutes because Ukraine had just started attacking. Um, and they had this in, this sort of incessant chant of of Ukraina Ukraina for like the, the whole 90 minutes um, and yeah the, um, the as Daniel said I mean, there's obviously this tangible sense of sort of unity and togetherness but also respect I mean the, the England players were applauded when they came out to warm up which I don't remember seeing for an international match before you know there's no booing of the national anthems and uh, and yeah that was that was a great moment actually um, you know I'm, I'm a proud Englishman but I was I was certainly willing them on um, to at least get a result, which which they fully merited, I thought. I had some friends in the uh, in the away end, and when they left the stadium, about a hundred or maybe hundred and fifty Ukrainian fans kind of stayed outside their entrance. And you know, I know from England away days that that can be a little bit daunting when you see a group like that. But they came out, and they, all they got was this kind of sort of applause as they walked through and thank you for giving us the game, basically. Which is yeah, it's not always like that on England away days, so it was nice. All right, so Zinchenko gives Ukraine the lead. Uh, Kyle Walker levels not long afterwards. His first goal on his 77th cap. Uh, Adrian, I'm guessing you'd rather talk about Harry Kane's pass than the finish from Walker. Oh, no, they were both sensational, weren't they? I, th- I thought that the pass was was an absolute worldie. It was it was one that any top-class midfielder would be really, really proud of. It, just, just the vision, really, to see it, because he was a long way away from Kyle Walker, wasn't he? And... To sort of make that little bit of eye contact, it probably wouldn't have been eye contact, of course. He, he, all he would have seen is a change of body shape from from Carl Walker, a little drop of the shoulder to indicate that, yeah, I've gone. Uh, so for him to just drop it over over the left back, who won't be pleased with his defending, I, th- I thought was, was just magnificent. But so was the touch. So was the touch on the run. Under pressure inside the box, it, it was cool as you like. And and it wasn't just the touch, actually. It was the way that Carl Walker then steadied himself. He didn't lash at it. He didn't try and hit the ball too early. He really waited and waited for the optimum moment to, to take the shot. And, and, I, and I love the celebration. You could see what it meant to Carl Walker after all those caps to finally get that moment where where he's the, he's the goal scorer. So, no, it was was a beautiful goal, sort of not, not really in keeping with the rest of that England performance, which was pretty drab and, and insipid, I thought. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, all right, so we've done the atmosphere. We've done the Kane goal. Let's get to the real reason we're here. Moaning about England and their negativity in spite of the overwhelming number of creative players in the squad. Um, Tim, in your post-match piece for The Athletic, you say that England's players are in danger of outgrowing their coach. Tell us more. Yeah, I, I wrote a, a fairly critical piece. I felt bad about it because, you know, England have... England are doing very, very well in the group. You know, they've beaten Italy away. Um, thought last night was a decent point in, in certain circumstances. Um, they've not conceded a shot on target in their previous three games. You know, they're breezing through the group like they always do. You look at other nations like Italy and Germany, you know, struggling, really struggling. So why are we focusing on on England's limitations? But then I just think we can all see it coming, you know, next summer. Breezing through the group getting through to the quarters and all the semis and, the, uh, and playing well but a valiant exit I, I just think we can all see that coming and I, I think it's a pertinent point to make which I did in the piece this morning is that England have a lot of top top players now you know they've really moved on from 2018 when it was England FC and that brilliant sort of culture that, that, that Southgate generated which and you know he made England likeable again and they overachieved and that was great but I feel we're back to England expects now and, and, and I guess rightly so when you've got when you've got Bellingham, you know, leading Real Madrid in terms of goals, but also feels like he's leading that team at the moment. And you've got 
Harry Kane obviously moving to Bayern Munich where he's going to score a lot of goals. Declan Rice has moved up from West Ham to Arsenal. You've got Saka, you've got Foden, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Rhys James. You know, if, if we can't win a trophy with these players, when do we ever win one? You know, I think we're back to that sort of mid-2000s mindset. So can Southgate, you know, who's underappreciated by many, and I think he's done a tremendous job, but can he raise his game and coach these players to victory? Or do they turn up for England duty and kind of see it as a step down? I think, I think it's, probably, it's probably the latter. So we're asking him to make himself a better coach in time for next summer. That's his test. It's his greatest test. And nights like last night just didn't look very good. When you had Bellingham taken off, you had Henderson still on, Saka and Madison taken off, and England just didn't look like scoring in the last 20 minutes at all against inferior opposition. So, so yeah, I think you can, just, you can just see the problems coming up next summer as well as they're doing in the group. Um, Daniel, you you were a Gareth guy last time I checked. Is that is that still the case? And would you like to um, put some sort of rebuttal as to why he's still the man to lead us to glory next summer? Well, I think he is because I think he's probably earned that shot. I, I, I don't know. I th- it, it does feel like your next summer is going to be a kind of line in the sand one way or the other. Uh, I think it probably will be his last major tournament, either because he's done everything he set out to do or because he hasn't met the expectations, which... As Tim says, he has grown those expectations with what he's achieved and how he's brought through those players. I, I, I have to say, I think last night, I thought England were going to set up in this 4-2-3-1 with Henderson and Rice holding. And I don't I don't like Henderson and this team anymore for various reasons, but we do lack someone else to play next to Declan Rice in that 4-2-3-1. And I liked it because it, it made it look like Jude Bellingham was going to be really high up the pitch. Two things in my mind were wrong with it. One, James Madison on the left doesn't really work. It felt like it was trying to crowbar him into the team because he's played really well at the start of this season, where his actual best position would be where we were trying to get Jude Bellingham into the team, which is a problem. But mainly, it's there is slow possession, and I don't mind the slow possession at the back. The problem is, is it was not that Henderson was too defensive. It was that Henderson, to me, was too high at the pitch. He was moving so high up with the ball that his next pass was always backwards. It was always either backwards to Kyle Walker or backwards to Harry Maguire or backwards to Mark Gahey or backwards to Declan Rice. So what we actually needed Henderson to do was to stay where he was and let Bellingham come for the ball. Because when Bellingham gets the ball on the turn and Madison get the ball on the turn, then things can happen. It just felt like we... We were carrying the ball too far at the pitch, then playing backwards and then acting surprised that Ukraine had 10 players behind the ball, which is what they did. And and Southgate was right to point out, and we should point out, they were really, really good defensively organised. Other than the slip from Mikolenko to let him Walker, they were really good defensively. It meant Harry Kane had to drift so far. But yeah, I I don't think that worked. I, don't, I think we're going to have to accept that Belling up, we have more attacking midfielders than any other position, and therefore Bellingham is probably going to have to play that reserve role next to Declan Rice, and then we have to play an extra attacking midfielder. Whether that's a three of Rice, Bellingham, and Madison, I don't know, or maybe Eze in there, but it does feel like we're wasting a position with Henderson in that team at the moment because all he's doing is carrying the ball forward, playing it back, offering his kind of huff and puff without the ball, but then England have enough of the ball in games. They play with this control, they don't really need another player to do that than Rice. In a, in a match like this, Daniel, guys, it, it was obvious that, uh, that England were going to dominate possession. It, it was clear that they were going to have 70-odd percent of the ball and that Ukraine would sit and, and say, come and break us down. And you're talking about these positions that Henderson's in. No one can persuade me that, that Phil Foden or James Madison can't play in that role. I mean, I'm sorry. They just they, they don't need to do very much defending in that role because we have the ball. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think, I think either are capable of, of playing it, especially with Declan Rice there as the insurance. So I just think it's a no-brainer that you go with Rice in the middle, Bellingham just to one side and one of Foden or Madison the other, or you go with the two and, and have, have a number 10. So yeah, it was a complete waste of a player having, having Henderson in, in there. He just doesn't have the speed, um, the speed of thought actually, the little bit of guile doesn't find angles that a Phil Foden would find. It takes extra touches compared to a Foden or Madison who will receive it on the half turn and just open up the pitch. I just think that was a massive missed opportunity. And and to put Madison on the left was, was clearly an error in hindsight. It, and it, it in part cost us the goal with the overlapping right back running off of James Madison, who, because he's 
a little bit alien to that role, gets drawn inside. So then it's a 2v1 and and from there we, we sort of made a little bit of a mess of it. <laughs> with, with Maguire ending up charging towards Mark Gurhey to close him down inside the box instead of one of the Ukrainian forwards. So yeah, I think that, that the Madison experiment was poor and, and that, yeah, Henderson should have been out for a more attacking player. The other thing I would say, and this isn't an excuse, and, and, and Southgate didn't even mention it after the game, but I don't know what you thought, Tim, but or if it came across on TV, but the pitch out wide looked really, really bobbly. There were at least like two or three times where I think Saka miscontrolled one that went out for a throw in, Madison miscontrolled one, Bellingham played a couple of passes that kind of bobbled off his foot and went out. The pitch was in really, it was like it looked like a kind of patchwork quilt pitch, and it did look really bad. Southgate after the game kind of said, look, I, I agree that we had all this possession and didn't do anything with it. But he, he, his argument was actually it fell apart further forward than the central midfielders. It fell apart with those attacking players because they just never really quite felt like they had control of the ball, which, you know, it's not good enough. And it's, it, you know, I don't think he was trying to say it was good enough, but it, it was a shocking pitch out wide. It really was hard to control the ball. The other thing that, that people are talking about in the aftermath of this game, Tim, is Harry Maguire. I wonder what the reaction amongst the press pack and if Gareth Southgate spoke about him much post-match. 23 minutes in the Premier League for him this season. I guess it didn't really matter because Ukraine had one shot on target in the match. But but might there be, you know, you talk about players in the England squad, how they feel when they when they come to camp, whether they think they're taking a, a step down. If, you, if you've got the likes of Lewis Duncan, Levi Colwell, who've played every game in the Premier League this season and played together as a pair in the Premier League last season, how, how can they view this as a meritocracy if they don't feature here and Maguire, who's whatever he is, fifth, sixth choice central defender at Manchester United does? Yeah, I, th- I think it's the same debate that certainly fans have been having for a long time. Maguire and Henderson still there, still in this team. I, you know, the, the, most of the messages I had from friends last night were, can you tell Southgate, you know, why is he still playing Maguire? Why is he still playing Henderson? And you see on Twitter as well, these are the, these are the two with good reason that people are kind of questioning why they're still in this team in, in, in September 2023. And the Maguire argument is, is weakening by the week because he's not playing any football, as you say, 23 minutes. It was actually his, his since the start of the World Cup, that was Maguire's 10th start for England. And over that time frame, since the start of November, he started 11 games for Manchester United. So that's okay, maybe for certain countries or, or certain teams, but not when you're Man United in England. And he's been pretty much fit for that whole time. You cannot have a centre defender when there's when there's other talent behind. And, you know, the, the, cent- the centre-back roles are undergoing a, a, a massive change in personnel. I don't, think, I don't know if people have really cro- quite realised, but since last November, you know, they've lost now. Tyrone Mings is out for the season. Connor Cody, who's gone down to the Championship. Ben White, who's who's not being picked for the foreseeable future, and we don't really see that changing. And Eric Dyer, who's been frozen out at Spurs. So they've lost four defenders. In my mind, they should lose Maguire as well. Um, so who partners John Stones? And I, I thought Mark Gay... Uh, had a, had a decent game after a nervy start last night. You know he wasn't doing what he does for Palace, sort of driving driving out of defence in possession. But I think you can understand that in the circumstances. And then as you mentioned, you've got Levi Colwell, you've got Tamori who was in the squad last night, who's who's won uh, more titles with AC Milan than he's made starts for England in the past sort of two three years. Um, and you've got Lewis Dunk as well, who's really you know evolved as and, and become a, a fantastic defender. You know ball-playing defender rather than the sort of brutish clear-it defender that he was a few years ago. So there are good options here. And if Maguire's not playing for Man United, he can't play for England in my mind. This is not a, d- a defence of the decision because I, I I will be annoyed if, if Maguire is still in the team in six months and not playing for Manchester United. But the reasoning was that England won in Italy with a defence of Shaw, Maguire, Stones and Walker. And... They this squad because of the the absentees that that Tim mentions the other defenders in this squad share eight caps. Now you can say well the reason they only share eight caps is because Harry Maguire keeps getting picked. I understand that, but the the argument for last night was this is the second hardest game in the group. I don't want to pick three of a four three of my defence to be unfamiliar completely with each other. Um, you could maybe have got that down around a little bit by playing Cole on the left next to Chilwell, who he knows slightly from club level, but. I kind of do understand it last night. I do understand having like the, the junior centre-half next to the senior one, albeit one that's not really playing very much at club level, accepted. I agree that if we're still in this position in six months' time, then that's unacceptable. And I think 
I fully expect that situation to change. I think the reason that Maguire has been in this squad with all the others is that this felt like the kind of audition camp in training to watch them and try and work out where England are going to be in Euro 2024. Because there's there's an option here that has John Stones playing in his his Man City role in defensive midfield next to Declan Rice, by the way, with, with two new defenders. Uh, I don't know if Southgate does that. It feels a little bit too progressive for him, maybe. But Stones and another, I think, is to be expected and and to reiterate Tim says it is Mark Gehe at the moment he's the man with the shirt and it's his to lose one thing that's never really been said is is that maybe another a new voice needs to come in next to Gareth well I was just going to give the occasional reminder that Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank is now on the England coaching staff <laughs> teammate of Southgate's at Borough right was he just hanging around at St George's Park a lot when he was in charge of Burton and, and you know, <laughs> he's working with help. he's working with the strikers isn't he he's, he's, yeah. he's a kind of striker coach but, but when it comes to big decisions in matches it's Southgate and Holland every single time they're the two that chat their way through games and they're the two that have been responsible for numerous big game blow ups I just think I just think for for the sake of the team, a fresher voice in Gareth's ear during games might be something to consider because I'm telling you now the way the only way we really fluff getting to the semi-finals or the final or even winning the Euros is down to probably the centre halves and the keeper and the manager. It's as simple as that. They're they're the only weak links in this in this setup. I just think it's, it should be something that's under consideration. Maybe maybe a new number two. Well, I guess we'll wait and see on that one. That'll do for England. In terms of Ukraine, another pretty miserable time for Mikhailo Mudrik. Listen, maybe you can help me out here. He's got a neck tattoo that says talent ain't enough, but there's a line struck through the word talent. Does that mean talent is enough or talent ain't enough? At The Totally Show on Twitter, uh, if you know. Tim, you're off to Glasgow next to see England take on Scotland in a a not very friendly match. Um, Scotland haven't beaten England since 1999, according to my friends at Soccer Base, Don Hutchison and all that, and not since 85 at home. This is their best chance to do so in ages, isn't it? I can't wait for this, I've got to say. Um, I've yeah, never watched a game at Hamden. I, I think the atmosphere is going to be uh, something else. I mean, Scotland are just on this astonishing run. That Some of the numbers being banded around in, of their record is just crazy. 11, 11 wins in a row in, in normal qualifiers for Euros and World Cups is astonishing and they beat some good teams in there you know Spain, Denmark played some absolute rotters as well like the Faroe Islands and Moldova but those are the games that you know that they used to that they used to slip up on Alright let's have a little break we'll talk a bit more Scotland stuff next Hi everyone David Ornstein here and I want to tell you about the Athletic's new bite-sized podcast The Daily Football Briefing If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular length podcast in the morning this is right up your street In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. To the right from McTominay. Adams and Hickey looking for a pass. McTominay into the box, rolls it to the edge of the area. McGinn takes a touch and shoots yes. and scores! It's so easy here in Larnaca! Well, as Tim mentioned, you can't stop Scotland at the moment. Steve Clark's side on the verge of booking their place at next summer's tournament after a cruise control-enabled 3-0 win in Cyprus on Friday night. 11 points clear of third place Norway. Norway have a game in hand. If their match against Georgia ends in a draw on Tuesday, Scotland will qualify that game taking place at the same time as the friendly with England in Hampden, so it could be quite the stramash in Glasgow. Their best ever run, Daniel, in qualifying matches, <laughs> won their last 11, kept nine clean sheets, and it's all been inspired by free-scoring midfielder Scott McTominay. 
Yeah, I, I, I think there's always been a sense with Scotland that they trip themselves up in fixtures that they they shouldn't have done for so long. That they they always they ret- always retained an ability to rise to, an, to the occasion. I think, and that sounds patronising, but it's not. It's a genuine skill, and they had it. What they were unable to do was kind of <laughs> avoid themselves tripping up their own feet when they could see a finish line. And they've got a very good football team now. <laughs> you know, they've got Billy Gilmore as a rising star in centre midfield. They've got Andrew Robertson and Kieran Tierney in this kind of both like hybrid left-back central defender role. They've got Scott McTominay and McGinn advanced, so they've got energy high up the pitch. They turn the ball over high because those two press really high. Che Adams is a workmanlike striker. They're a good team. They're, they're not as good as Spain, and that was a phenomenal result. But they are as good as everyone else in that group. And... There's no reason why they shouldn't have done this earlier. It's taken some some savvy management. It's taken Scott McTominay having one of the most extraordinary goal scoring runs in you know that I can remember, uh, because everything he touches turns to goal at the moment, and they're good goals. But this is what happens when a national team. <laughs> I, I think sometimes we we have this idea of of national teams kind of all clubbing together and being great in the sum of their parts. Is this almost like a sort of Eastern European crack outfit cliche? But British teams can do that as well. That's what England did at 2018. They they came together. They had a really good mood. They they deliberately put to bed the kind of nightmares of years past. And they said, look, there's no reason why this can't be wholly positive. And that's exactly what it is at the moment. Yeah, Wales 2016 too. Um, Adrian, yeah, absolutely. Should Eric Ten Hag be looking at Scott McTominay and going, huh, hmm, maybe <laughs> there's something more I can get out of this guy? Maybe they maybe he can granite jackarize uh, Scott McTominay in terms of turning him into this, yeah, all, all encompassing box to box attacking star. Who knows? I mean, it, it certainly suits him, doesn't it? Breaking into the area and and finishing on, off moves. That's what we saw at Arsenal last season with with Xhaka. So look, it, it's something to consider. Not least because Manchester United's midfield is a little bit um, powder puff without the ball, um, very flimsy. In, in the tougher game. So having someone that can defend, but also can offer something in the final third is is something to to ponder for, for Eric Ten Hag. It, it feels like McTominay is way down the pecking order, doesn't it? I don't think that's going to happen overnight, but but I think he should consider it for sure. Um, but yeah, this was, um, this was a good win. I mean, you'd expect them to beat Cyprus um, given their form and it was really, really comfy. I do like that box midfield and, and they'll give... They'll give England... Well, they just won't make it easy for England. Certainly won't make it easy for England to get Harry Kane into the game because they're so strong down that down that central spine. I think down the sides is where England will, will look to look to hurt them. By the way, on, on this sort of new team, what about John McGinn? I mean, he he is just dynamite for Scotland, isn't he? And, and I do think that his left foot has been one of the sort of most underrated weapons in football for, for quite some time now. He has got a phenomenal left foot. Um, and just because his name is John McGinn and he plays for Aston Villa and, and you know, he doesn't score that many at club level, we, we sort of overlook it. That is a really, really great left foot. You've got to give huge credit to Steve Clark, obviously, but I, th- I think it's an important point to make that this hasn't sort of naturally come together. A golden generation of like extremely talented players. They've, they've obviously got a lot of talent there, as Daniel pointed out, but... You know, he had to try different formations and personnel and positions to get to this point. They played McTominay in defence for an awful long time and, you know, they tried to work out how to shoehorn, you know, Tierney Robertson into the same team. And it, it took a while, it took patience and it took it took good management and good coaching. My favourite um, uh, tweet on this uh, over the weekend was a comedian called Ray Bradshaw who said, Scotland qualifying easily for a major tournament while it's 26 degrees in September is a good sign of the apocalypse, <laughs> which I think just about sums up their surprise at how well it's going. Um, my new favourite thing, by the way, because we were talking about England's coaching team, is looking up international coaching team. Scotland have got John Carver, James Morrison, the old West Brom midfielder, not the so-so guitar player and singer, and Austin McPhee, used to know his nanny, uh, on their team, and Chris Woods, is the goalkeeping coach. Sensational stuff. Um, I asked the chaps to give me some other footballers who are far more important to their countries than they ever are slash were to their clubs. Um, Daniel, I think you've won the quiz here with um, with your offering. 
Yes, Charlie asked me uh, to show listeners how the sausages are made. Charlie messaged me to ask me my thoughts on this particular question. And my immediate one, even through a fog of fatigue, was Miroslav Kloser, who was really, really good at club level and did well at Bayern after getting that big move relatively late in his career. But 71 goals and 137 caps for Germany. And also this kind of phenom of not just poaching, also kind of the relationship with him and Lucas Podolski, who would be another nomination, I think, for this list. Yeah, I had Podolski. I also had Asamoah Jam, who I know you did, Adrian, but my autocorrect changed that to a Samoan gynecologist. Um, you had an England striker in yours, Clarkie. Yeah, I also got Peter Crouch. I think that Peter Crouch, um, his record for England is just stunning, isn't it? 22 goals in, in 42 appearances and he, he didn't really ever hit those heights for, for his club side he wasn't always first choice of course um, for every team that he represented in, in the Premier League um, across 19 seasons as a pro he only ever broke the 15 goal barrier three times Peter Crouch so he wasn't wasn't ever really a one in two kind of guy but for country he he was pretty prolific the yeah, the, the overseas national teams couldn't quite handle his height in the same way as, as Premier League defences. I'll take a slightly different approach to this one. I, I can't beat the nominations the guys are given, but I do quite like the phenomenon along these lines where um, a player will play for, an inter- for, for their country before a club. So Wolves have had a couple of instances over the years with Johnny Gorman and Ryan Green. Um, who, judging by the blank faces on, on Zoom, <laughs> you guys haven't heard of either. Yeah, so Johnny Gorman played for Northern Ireland before Wolves and Ryan Green played for Wales before Wolves. Um, and neither did anything with their careers of note. But, um, but yeah, I do like that phenomenon. My blank face was just trying to work out how Tim was going to make this about Wolves. And, and he managed it, to be fair to him. <laughs> oh, Always got to do one every episode. Oh, that's, that's the brand. We're going we're to be doing more uh, Tenuous Wolves links later in the pod. But first, Hansley Flick has been wished the best in his future endeavours by the DFB after they ran out of patience following Germany's 4-1 home defeat by Japan on Saturday. Let's get the immediate reaction of the one and only Raphael Hernigstein. So it's not Allo Allo, but uh, Auf Wiedersehen for Herr Flick. He got fired on Sunday afternoon after another disastrous 4-1 defeat against Japan and Friendly on Saturday, which really left him as the lamest of ducks and the German FA not cruel enough to see him limp on for another, in effect, meaningless game against Tuesday because it was clear they could not back him anymore after the team's disintegration on Saturday. Flick is the first German FA manager who gets fired from his job. All the others resigned with a degree of graciousness, but uh, he was released of his position after a, a really poor run, especially after the World Cup, where the uh, expected comeback or renaissance or restart, or even reboot, you might call it, never really materialized. Um, it's a shame in a way, because he was well-liked, uh, got on with the players, but it was clear that he wasn't really able to put across a meaningful style and system. And then by the end... The players were as unsure about his ideas as perhaps deep down he was all along. Raphael Hernigstein, you'll no doubt be hearing more from him as this story progresses on the Totally Football Show. So that's our resident German's view. Now let's hear from a German resident, specifically the Athletics' Seb stafford Um Seb, had this, had this been coming even before the, the whooping in Wolfsburg on Saturday? Very much so, Matt. This really seemed like the last act in a play which has been going on for about a year now. Ever since the World Cup, probably a little bit before, there's been a very negative feeling about the German national team, about how its individual components are being used, whether or not it adds up to the sum of its parts. Increasingly, especially throughout the results in 2023, the answer to that has been no. I mean, Germany haven't actually won a game since March. They beat Peru at home, but... They've lost to Belgium, they've drawn with Ukraine, they've lost to Poland, they lost at home to Colombia. And Japan, the defeat and the nature of it was so comprehensive that the outcome today was really inevitable. It's it's very rare to see a a German public turn so loudly on their side, but the whistles in Wolfsburg were very, very hard to ignore. He left the Bayern Munich job for this, which 
probably doesn't look like a terrific decision in hindsight. Yeah, he won 70 of his 86 games in charge of Munich, so it's really taken a turn since then. Um, Rudy Voller in temporarily, I'm guessing he doesn't fancy it full-time. He's already said that he doesn't really intend to be you know, there beyond just one game. He's pitched himself as part of the DFB statement earlier today as someone who's coming in for the French game, someone who perhaps might be able to oversee a respectable result. At the very least, the, the, the objective on Tuesday night is not to suffer any more damage to the collective ego. Rudi Voller is a very popular person in Germany. A lot of people like him. And this is another subplot here because all the while, while the results have been very, very poor, a kind of social disconnect has occurred between the national team and the public. Some very, um, very memorable statistics about how many German people did not watch the World Cup in in 2022 in Qatar and a lot of people had a very negative reaction to the saga around the one love armband and even Germany's participation in the tournament itself and so it feels like a lot of hearts and minds have been lost and Voller as a, as a very popular man as someone from a better era of German football is kind of well positioned to restore not a feel-good factor but make everything feel a little less negative before a permanent change is made. Finally then, who's the favourite to come in? Am I putting two and two together and getting five if I say Julian Nagelsmann? Would Jurgen Klopp maybe be tempted just on a, on a temporary basis perhaps? No, I, I can't see Klopp. I, I don't think that's going to work. I think that that opportunity will come later in his career. Uh, he seems to be content with his rebuild at Liverpool as well. So I don't think that's that's very realistic. Nagelsmann's an interesting one because obviously you see him as a kind of high priest of a certain type of football. And one of the things that's been lacking under Flick, probably also previously under the sort of the, the latter years of Yogi Love's reign, was a, a proper identity, a, a real sense of what Germany were beyond a cast of players that were quite well known in European football. So the advantage of a Nagelsmann is, right, you know what Germany are going to be. It's going to be that high-paced, vertical, ambitious football that we saw really at Leipzig rather than obviously in the 18 months at Bayern Munich. Uh, Oliver Glasner is another name uh, in the running. Austrian um, did a very, very fine job at Wolfsburg for a few years, most recently at Eintracht Frankfurt, where he won the Europa League. And yeah, I would be surprised if we go beyond that. Uh, there was quite a lot of noise about Lothar Mateus on my Twitter feed late on Saturday night, but I think that might just have been, uh, not shock, but uh, a bit of a kind of an emotional response to, to what everybody had seen against Japan and Wolfsburg. So Nagelsmann, at the very least, I expect there to be a conversation with Nagelsmann, because why wouldn't you at this point? It just makes a lot of sense to at least, um, you know, for the, for the two parties to feed each other out a little bit. Speaking of new managers, we'll talk Luciano Spalletti's Italy next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Italy and North Macedonia added another chapter to their unlikely and burgeoning history in Skopje. James Horncastle was following this one for The Athletic. Let's enjoy his sultry northern brogue now as he tells us what happened in the form of a voice note. On Saturday night, Italy drew in North Macedonia against North Macedonia in disappointing circumstances. They took the lead before the hour mark with a glancing soft header by Churi Mobilevic. Given the camera was behind him when he connected with it, I didn't think it was actually going to get over the line or even go in. And then they stopped playing. Uh, to be fair to Italy, they created a lot of chances in the first half. Sandro Tonali hit the post. Di Marco was put through on goal after a nice 1-2 with Barella. 
decides to square it for Immobile rather than take it on himself. Cristante had a couple of chances from corner kicks and Immobile's goal comes from Barella hitting the bar. But they stopped playing and North Macedonia gained in confidence and they scored a free kick to get themselves a point. Ennis Bardi uh, curling a shot. It looked like it went through Donnarumma's hands, frankly. And there's been some criticism of Donnarumma this morning because he was at fault in the infamous World Cup playoff semi-final in Palermo when Tchaikovsky scored the only goal of the game. North Macedonia won and Italy did not go to the Qatar World Cup. There's been very little criticism of Spalletti because it was his first game. He's only had four days with the players. The pitch was terrible and everyone has been saying, we can't say that's an excuse, um, but the pitch was terrible. And now they've got this game coming up against Ukraine at San Siro. Ukraine coming off getting a point uh, against England. And yeah, there are fears that Italy won't even uh, finish second in this group. Um, they can still technically top it if they were to win all of their five remaining games and beat England by two big goals, but no one's anticipating that right now. Italy do have the safety net of a playoff, uh, which they're already locked in for. So even if they were to finish outside the top two, by virtue of being in a Nations League final four, um, they they get a playoff, which I think at this moment in time would look like to be against Poland. Um, but still, that's a little bit off uh, in the distance. And look, you know, I think as far as Italy are concerned, will Spalletti have some regrets uh, about not calling up Scamacca? Scamacca pretty much scored a perfect hat-trick or could have scored a perfect hat-trick in his last game for Atalanta. Uh, he couldn't call upon Domenico Berardi because Berardi's been involved in this standoff with Sassuolo. He wanted to go to Juventus. Uh, Chiesa got injured a few days before this game. Uh, Verratti has been on the margins at PSG and I think is about to go and play in Qatar for 45 million. Uh, that's the fee uh, PSG are getting paid by a Qatari club. Wink, wink. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, here we are again, lots of pressure. Uh, it's all about getting better results than Ukraine in these two games against Ukraine. Many thanks to James. Sounds like Donnarumma won't be able to legitimately say I feel love from any of his countrymen for a while there. Um, Daniel, I guess the problem, not a problem for Italy, but the thing with, with qualification for these particular championships is that if you're a major nation like them, it's quite difficult to actually not make it. As James mentioned, they've got the fullback of the playoff if needs be. They do have a couple of games in hand on England. You'd expect them to still be in Germany next summer anyway? Yes, I would. And I'm, I'm always kind of trying to stop myself doing this, but... Results like these and Germany's against Japan and Germany's funk now, they are what make me less inclined to be negative about England because they are two very pronounced funks, slumps, declines in both cases over a period of about two or three years now at least. And yeah, Italy should qualify, but they've got four points from three games and They've already lost at home to England and they've already drawn away at North Macedonia. They're perfectly capable of losing in Ukraine and then suddenly they are scratching around. So, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't be certain to have them there. They just, they just look like, with Mancini's exit, the way it's going, the players that seem to be missing from every camp, it just doesn't look particularly happy at the moment. I think the talent pools are really different, though, at the moment. Yeah, they are. Um, look, at, look at who played for Italy the other night and tell me who gets in England's team. Probably the keeper, who ironically didn't cover himself in glory, Donnarumma. But other than that... I'd have Tonali over Henderson, just to be perfectly clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but would you have Tonali over, over Foden or, or one of our other attacking midfielders? Maybe not. But yeah, and you look at Germany as well. They went with a sort of double pivot of Emre Chan and Ilkay Gundogan. And Kai Havertz was, was, the, was leading the line. I, I don't look around that Germany side actually now and think anyone really walks in into the first eleven for England. You've obviously got good players, um, to Stegen, Kimmich, uh, Gnabry, etc. But 
it's not vintage Germany. It's not vintage Italy. Didn't qualify for the last two World Cups, did they? So this would be, you know, really disastrous for them to to miss out on a major tournament again. And you've got to say, there's a possibility of that now if they don't go and beat Ukraine. Meanwhile, there was no luck for the Irish on Sunday. The Republic's qualification hopes all but over after the Netherlands came from a goal down to win 2-1 in Dublin. Adam Eder's fourth-minute penalty had the hosts ahead after Virgil van Dijk's handball, but the Dutch hit back courtesy of a Cody Gakpo spot kick substitute. Wout Weghorst's winner then condemned the Republic to a fourth defeat in five qualifiers. Means that Stephen Kenny's side are six points adrift of the second-place Dutch, having played a game more. Uh, also, Northern Ireland suffered a fifth successive defeat. They went down 1-0 in Kazakhstan. Highly unlikely that they will qualify. Tim, you're the Athletics' nominal Portugal correspondent based purely on the number of Portugal players Wolves used to have. I say used to. There are only five Portuguese players in the current Wolves squad. Can you tell me who they are? Oh, blimey. Um, well, one, one will be... Uh, who's left? Nelson Semedo. Uh, Gonzalo Guedes is still there, technically. Uh, Jose Sá. on my list, but I'll give you him. Jose Bru- Sá, yeah. Striker. Uh, Bruno Jordão. Another striker. And um, I've got Fabio Silva, Totti, yeah. and Pedro Neto on my list as well, but you had two that I didn't have in. Sounds like they've got about 12. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, what about Portugal, the national team then? The uh, the Spanish Southgate, Roberto Martinez, in charge. Brilliant in qualifying. Played 5, won 5, scored 15, conceded 0. They beat Slovakia on Friday night. Bruno Fernandes got the goal. Adrian, Cristiano Ronaldo. That challenge on Dubravka, he ought to have got a red card for that. Was it, was it the fact that he was so sincere in his apology afterwards that saved him or the fact that he's Cristiano Ronaldo? Do you know what? I, I think it's uh, 50-50. It's 50% it's because it's Cristiano Ronaldo and the ref was a little bit scared to send him off. And the other is because he was so apologetic. It, it was one of the sort of, uh, it was proper crawling for, from Cristiano Ronaldo. He knew what was coming and he, he should have got a red card for that. Even, even if he didn't mean it, I think that we've seen players get red carded for significantly less than that. So yeah, he was jammy there. Talking of talent pools, by the way, Portugal, they had Bernardo Silva, Ronaldo and, and Leao up top, but three unused substitutes in this game. Gonzalo uh, Ramos, brilliant young striker, Joao Felix, talent, and Diogo Jota, all unused subs. You know, what Germany and Italy would, would, would you know, would do to have those guys available to them. So, um, yeah, again, Roberto Martinez has fallen on his feet in terms of the players that he's got at his disposal. Portugal not quite there yet because Luxembourg, birthplace of producer Charlie, no less, hanging in there with 10 points in third place already, equaling their best ever points tally in a qualifying campaign. They play Portugal on Monday night in the Algarve. Daniel, if they get there, are we going to give them just as much patronisation as we did to Iceland in 2016? Do you know what? No, Luxembourg are, at some point, they are my favourite international football team at the moment, which will sound patronising, but they have, the amount of work they've done behind the scenes with their youth level teams... This is not a, a national team that is filled with players born in different countries. I think something like 17 or 16 of the 23 are born in Luxembourg. Their under-21s are legitimately good. And they have taken 10 points in five games, having lost 6-0 at home to Portugal. They are, they've got a chance, you know, of taking points off Slovakia and therefore qualifying. They drew away in Slovakia first game, 0-0 of the group stage. So they can beat Slovakia at home. And if they do that, they will be favourites to qualify because Bosnia are awful now. Iceland are worse. You know, Iceland have completely tailed off. So, yeah, Luxembourg have got a genuine shot at the Euros here, which would be magnificent. It really would. They are, yeah, they are going to just keep improving and improving. Tim, who are you going to be supporting in the big one in the Algarve on Monday then? Wolves Light or, or everybody's new favourite international team? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'll certainly be supporting Luxembourg, but I do, I do think Portugal will, will win it. As Adrian said earlier, the team is remarkable and they've got a bit of depth. Roberto Martinez has, has, hasn't had to do much um, to improve them. I think he's, Fernando Santos had been there so long that he, he really had his favourites in that team. Obviously, Ronaldo 
been won, but he's he's sort of brought in Jao Palinha, which which would be an easy decision for anyone who's seen much of him in the Premier League. He's now come into DM. Rafael Leao has now come into the side as well. But the, the the Ronaldo debate just fascinates me because he's 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 still there despite being dropped in the World Cup. Um, he's now back in the team. He scored five in five. He's scoring plenty in Saudi Arabia against weaker weaker opposition too. You know, 39 in February. He'll be he'll be 39 at the tournament next summer. This Ronaldo debate, it's, it's, it's their version of the Harry Maguire debate. It's, it's, it's a bit sexier than ours. Um, yeah, he's still playing every single time for Portugal. Martinez has decided not to move on without him. Yeah, and at the other end of the scale from Cristiano Ronaldo, we find Barcelona's Laminia Mal, who became Spain's youngest ever player in their 7-1 win against Georgia on Friday, then followed that up by becoming the youngest player to score for a European nation since 1906. He turned 16 in July. Uh, Producer Charlie says, what were you doing when you just turned 16, etc.? Well, I was holding down jobs as both a paperboy and a shelf stacker while studying for my GCSE. So, you know, um, similar, I guess. Uh, in equally shocking news, Grace Robertson points out hat-trick hero Alvaro Morata is Spain's fifth all-time top scorer. Daniel, maybe Morata's one of those we missed on our list, actually, of players who do better for their country than they do their clubs, or is the fact that he tends to miss a really good chance in the quarterfinal of every major tournament he plays in uh, mean that he's yeah. discredited from that? I can't remember which sort of semi-banterous Twitter account it was, but tweeted a, pic- a, a kind of picture of the Spain lineup and said, give me one reason why this does, this this team does not win Euro 2024. And I sort of looked from, from top to bottom and Alvaro Morata was the first name I saw and I kind of very harshly on him thought, well, I found my reason already if we want to stop me now. Um, he is in great form for them. But yes, there will be a, a moment after about 65 minutes of a knockout game at the Euros when he has the most pained look you've ever seen a footballer have on his face and he will just want the ground to swallow him up. Kind of almost like sort of Lukaku Korea, South Korea-esque. Um, yes, bless him. He's enjoying himself now in the qualifiers and that's all that matters. On Lamine Yamal, he cut this call up after five stars in La Liga. I mean, it's getting less and less, isn't it, for, for, for these prodigious young talents? I think, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I might be, but he is also eligible for Morocco. So I think this might be a little bit of a let's get some caps under his belt really, really quickly <laughs> so then there's no decision to make further down the line. But he's clearly a you know, precocious talent as well. Good luck to him. Right, OK, that's Europe pretty comprehensively covered. We'll take a look at what happened elsewhere this weekend next. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. South American qualifying for the World Cup 2026 began on Thursday night. Match day one of 18. Argentina kicked off the defence of their trophy with a 1-0 win over Ecuador. You'll never guess who got the winner with a 25-yard free kick. Yes, playing a game a day for Inter Miami certainly seems to be helping Lionel Messi find his rhythm. Um, Elsewhere, Marcelo Bielsa got his tenure as Uruguay manager underway with a 3-1 win against one of his former teams, Chile. Arturo Vidal with the consolation goal for Chile. Didn't know he was still playing. It's the fifth World Cup qualifying campaign he scored in, which is the same as Lionel Messi. Um, Daniel, we've got to get Marcelo Bielsa back in for, for one last World Cup. The narrative demands it. Yeah, we do. He is wasted in Commonwealth qualifying because it was it was lengthy before, but now it's 90 matches, I guess. Yeah, 90 get matches. And, I mean, six of the 10 teams qualify automatically from those 90 matches. And another one goes into a playoff, which they'll be favourites to win. It is... Yeah, I mean, it's a mad situation. And, it, and it, it's even worse this time because Ecuador have been docked points. They're starting on minus three. So, like... Yeah, Brazil and Uruguay and Argentina are going to play 18 matches and most of them are half pace. Everyone's going to have a lovely time and then they're going to get to the, the World Cup and wonder why Europe is looks an awful lot more competitive than them and that's why. 
Uh, Daniel mentions Brazil there. 5-1 winners over Bolivia in interim manager Fernando Dini's first game in charge. Neymar scored twice, the first of which officially took him past Pelé as all-time top scorer. Dominou, Rodrigo fez a finta, Neymar a batida! Michael Cox has got a piece up on The Athletic, making the case that Neymar deserves to be considered up there with football's true greats. Um, Adrian, do you agree with that? And, and if he's not, what's stopping him? Is it, is it his personality? Is it the fact that he played for PSG for too long without winning the Champions League? Is there, is there not like a, a standout Neymar game that you get with other footballers? We say that was the big game that Neymar won all by himself. What do you think? All of the above, I think. Yeah, I think Cox is trolling us a little bit, isn't he? There, a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, and no, I wouldn't put him anywhere near the, the all-time greats. I, I've loved watching him play. I think in terms of his naught to top speed acceleration, he is up there with, with the best I've seen live and in the flesh. The way he can go from a standing start to just electrifying sprints that take him away from defenders, it's just, it's just sensational. But yeah, he's, he's always been a little bit inconsistent, in my opinion. Uh, very self-centred as a player and that and that's a turn off for me when when I'm thinking about a, about greatness it's a bit of a me 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 show and and having watched the extended highlights of of this game it was very much the Neymar show again in this match he was kicked from pillar to post he missed a penalty um had a million shots and eventually got got his goals towards the end of the game so yeah I'm not He's, he's been a brilliant player, but not not one of the all-timers, in my opinion. Um, by the way, Richarlison did not play well in this game. Missed a couple of very, very simple chances. Um, and a quick word on Gabriel of Arsenal. He came into the side, ostracised previously, or just just ignored, not ostracised, just just not picked. But he, he came in and had a very good game by all accounts. So... Um, so yeah, that, that's a positive for, for Arsenal. But yeah, yeah, Neymar, not 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 for me. Adrian, you say Richardson didn't have a good game. I don't know if you saw the the images um, of him. In, looked like he was in tears on the bench afterwards. I don't know no, if he's I just. See that, no. I don't know if he's just been maybe spraying some water over his face. I haven't seen the actual video, but I've certainly seen the still images of him after he missed an absolute sitter from six yards. I mean, you know, he must be licking his lips. Bolivia at home, they won five one. But the, the, the one he missed was awful. I mean, he miscontrols the cross that comes in, but Bolivia's defenders are so sort of vacant that he still has time to regain possession of the ball and have a free shot from six yards that he somehow, despite being fully balanced, blazes over the bar. And then, yeah, the next you see him, he's been subbed off in the 71st minute and he's crying on the bench. I mean, <laughs> this is Harry Kane's replacement up front in the Spurs team. <laughs> Dear me. Yeah, he's, so he's, he's down to two goals in 29 appearances now, um, stretching back to last season, which is... Uh, which is not good. Uh, whilst we're talking Brazil, we should note that on Sunday, Manchester United confirmed in a statement that Anthony will delay his return to training until further notice in order to address the allegations of assault against him. He was dropped from Brazil's squad for their qualifiers against Bolivia and Peru, subsequently appeared on Brazilian TV to deny the allegations. United said, As a club, we condemn acts of violence and abuse. We recognise the importance of safeguarding all those involved in this situation and acknowledge the impact these allegations have on survivors of abuse. Um, Daniel, we've got to be slightly careful with what we say about this legally, but but we can say that this seems to be a better response from Manchester United than, than what there was around the, the Mason Greenwood affair. Yeah, there, there, there's kind of two salient points. Firstly, is that because the the accusers in this case are are have made a complaint abroad, uh, Anthony can be named as the accused, um, which is not the case in in other ongoing cases, and therefore. Because he can be named, we know who it is, and it creates this kind of cycle around him and around Manchester United. And um, Manchester United say that they learned lessons from from the Mason Greenwood um, episodes uh, and the fallout from that. And and we should say that that Women's Aid, the domestic abuse charity, who were very critical of of United over the handling of the Greenwood of Greenwood, um, they they've they said they welcomed it. They said this is completely the right thing to do. They said that safeguarding has to come before football and you know, there's no argument to that. It's absolutely right. Um, we don't know how long 
Anthony will be away for, but it doesn't matter. It's that's that's not the priority here, and I, I understand that some football fans don't feel that way, but they should. All right, there's no easy segue here, so let's have a little sting slash ad break and clear our heads. Adrian and myself are going to be on what the EFL duty later in the week. That despite the depleted fixture list, all being well, we're going to have a League One manager with a football manager regen type name with us. Non-EFL aficionados might have been surprised to see the filed coast derby between Fleetwood and Blackpool in League One postponed due to international call-ups. Nancy Frost and wrote for The Athletic about why League One should also go on hiatus during these international breaks. Um, Clark, I'm going to give you a moment here to implore people to go and look up those two Mansfield goals at Accrington this weekend, which I would wager are as good as any that were scored in the world this week. Oh, absolutely magnificent. It happened at the the glamorous, um, is it the Crown Ground? I don't know what mm. it's called now. It's probably called something completely the different. Stadium now. Yes, I think it is. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, no, I was I was there last year, and I, I think I, yeah, there was there were a few wham related gags that we we dropped in. Obviously, as 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 is obligatory when you when you work there. So yeah, you're right. Um, first, you saw an overhead kick from Davis Keylor Dunn, who's on fire for Mansfield, who looked really good this year. But they always look good, Mansfield, and somehow seem to find a way not to get promoted. From the, from the thing about two. that one was his teammate putting his head in his hands in disbelief at what had just happened. That really made it very special. Love that, yeah, absolutely <laughs> loved it. But but that, that sort of paled into insignificance compared to Aaron Lewis, the fullback, who basically, if you imagine a goalkeeper clearing his lines, just boots it towards the halfway line, and then just inside the opposition half, Aaron Lewis. Just hits it one touch, hits it first time on the volley and it sails, and I mean sails, right into the top corner. There's no bounce, there's no, there's nothing jammy about it. It just sails right into the top corner. It, it is staggering, isn't it, Matt? And uh, yeah, if I was him, I mean, you, you just, you're just playing that in your mind, maybe for the rest of your life uh, on five minute cycles. It, it was, it was tremendous. Yeah, not exactly Club Tropicana, Accrington, but um, but well worth a, a look for those goals at least. Sorry, Tim. I was going to say, I haven't seen either of those goals, but but are they really better than this goal from the Liechtenstein right back? Yes, yeah. they are, I promise you. Just one other thing, Matt. Did, 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 I don't know if you've seen this. Um, it's not in the EFL, it's in the, in the National League North, but Scunthorpe versus Buxton Town. The fishiest abandonment I think you could you could ever imagine. The two one up Buxton, the away side here at Scunthorpe, they're into the five minutes of added time at the end of the game. So it's ninety one minutes, ninety two minutes, and there's torrential rain, and the ref abandons it. He takes the teams off. Buxton celebrates because they think he's blown the final whistle, and he hasn't. He's just he's just said no. We can't play on. I like the uh, the quote from uh, Scunthorpe boss Jimmy Dean, who told BBC Radio Humberside the game should have been abandoned earlier than that because we missed a penalty, but the player couldn't see the ball. Um, it's pretty Sunday league, but quite enjoyable as well. Uh, listen, you didn't think we were going to have much to talk about on an international week. We are nearly done, but we need a mini Arsenal news section first. The Gunners semi-finalists in last season's Women's Champions League. They're not going to be repeating that trick this term. They were knocked out on penalties by Paris FC. That's not PSG, by the way. Paris FC uh, also a decent team in French women's football, but Arsenal would have been expected to go through there. A 3-3 draw saw Alessia Russo score twice for Jonas Edeval's team. They were 2-0 down. They equalised in the 96th minute. Then again, four minutes from the end of extra time, but Russo and Frieda Marnham saw their spot kicks saved for Arsenal. Um, Adrian, you, you were at the Emirates, weren't you, for some of those European nights last season? It was a big money spinner for the club, if nothing else. This is a, a massive blow to them before the season's even really got started. It really is, yeah. It's it's horrendous news. It's the, it's the news that they feared. Obviously, these games, these qualifiers come very, very early in pre-season. The, the WSL doesn't kick off, of course, till the first weekend of October. So we're still... 20 days away from that or beyond 21 days and the players have, have just come back from their holidays post-World Cup of course so the prep time has been quite limited they've been having these mini tournaments dotted around Europe and and yeah Arsenal they beat Link Coppings the home side 3-0 to then play in this sort of mini final against Paris FC at Link Coppings Stadium it's, it's a 3G surface but yeah they just they just had a really poor 
poor performance for the most part. I think that Jonas Edeval will rue his team selection. He left uh, Alessia Russo out of the starting lineup. He left uh, Victoria Pelova out of the starting lineup. She's been excellent whenever she's played. And he also left out Katie McCabe, who's on the Ballon d'Or shortlist. Really, really important player and personality within the Arsenal women's team. And surprise, surprise, they go 2-0 down within a minute, all three are on. And then they, they mount a comeback, they scramble it, they get to extra time. Russo equalises for a second time with a great goal from 25, 30 yards out. But it goes to penalties and, and, and they came out the wrong side of that. So yeah, hammer blow. And obviously the finances, I think they would have factored in Champions League money for sure. So that's that's really uh, frustrating for them. It might scupper their bid for Mary Earps as well, the Manchester United goalkeeper. They've been quite aggressive in their pursuit of her. Apparently she's very, very keen to join Arsenal like Alessia Russo did. Now, will she be so keen? Um, because there's no Champions League football. United just have one qualifier to negotiate. And can Arsenal afford it without that, that Champions League money sort of banked? So, yeah, real, real blow. Uh, in less interesting Arsenal news, Nicola Pepe has signed for Trabzon Sports. £72 million club record signing back in 2019. Pepe will be playing at Papara Park. Will commentators <laughs> be saying Pepe Pepe picked a pass at Papara Park? Uh, almost certainly not. I'm available for Turkish Super League commentaries, uh, link in bio, etc. Well, that's going to do it for this mammoth Totally Football show. Many thanks to the many contributors that we've had, not least to Tim Spears, Adrian Clark, and Daniel Story. Producer Charlie as well, Seb Stafford Broad, James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, but mostly, of course, to you, listener. Jimbo back in the hot seat on Thursday, looking ahead to the return of the Premier League and reflecting on those midweek matchups too. Do join him for that if you can. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.